Deep Learning with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to the Robots Podcast. Today we'll be delving into the world of deep learning with Sergey Levin from the University of California, Berkeley. But before we do, I just wanted to mention that there's a special auxiliary interview linked to this episode, which you can find on the podcast service on SoundCloud or with a blog post on Robohub. Deep learning is the study of artificial neural networks and machine learning algorithms, with applications as diverse as speech and image recognition, natural language processing, biomedical informatics, drug discovery, and customer relations. Sergey Levin is an assistant professor at UC Berkeley, and his research focuses on the intersection between control and machine learning. His research aims to develop algorithms and techniques that can allow machines to autonomously acquire the skills for executing complex tasks. Our interview, Audro, spoke to Sergey about the challenges of deep learning on robotics hardware, the need to learn low-level skills before learning higher-level skills, how robots first learned to care about materials, and about developing continually learning systems. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi, my name is Sergey Levin. I'm an assistant professor at UC Berkeley. Can you tell me a bit about the motivation behind your research? Sure, yes. So my work is aimed at uh, exploring robotic learning. And uh, for me, uh, one of the things that I look at in my research is whether we can develop techniques that are very general that can allow robots to acquire a wide range uh, of skills automatically. The reason I think that's very important is that Uh, if we want robots to come out of the very structured environment of, of the factory, where uh, typically a lot of our robotics applications have been for the past few decades, I think we need robots that can really be generalists. Robots that can perform a wide variety of different behaviors in unstructured, complex, real-world environments. And I think the kind of large repertoires of behaviors you need for robots to really be useful as generalists are a little bit too large for us to be able to design completely manually uh, using kind of this the traditional techniques. So that's why I'm really interested in developing methods that can allow robots to acquire their own skills autonomously mm -hmm. so uh, without mean, human engineering. So you mean real-world environments are too complicated for us to figure out? So let me uh, give you an example. Let's say that you'd like a robot to perform a fairly simple chore. You'd want it to clean up your living room, right? So it needs to go in, maybe, maybe it's going to sweep the floor, pick up th some things and put them away. Uh, almost, you know, pretty much any able-bodied human being would be able to do this task very easily. The issue is that when the robot performs the task, even if in 90% of the cases very simple behaviors are, are very effective, it will frequently in the real world encounter situations where it will perform in a very unreasonable way. For instance, if it's cleaning your living room and uh, it needs to put away the children's toys in the toy box, Uh, maybe it will see a stuffed animal that goes in the toy box, but if it sees the family pet, that doesn't go in the toy box, even though it might look very similar. And if the robot knocks over a, a vase, the shards of glass on the floor, those don't go in the toy box either. So even though we take these things for granted, for a machine, these, this kind of common sense reasoning is extremely challenging. And it's really about the diversity of the real world. That in the real world, all sorts of unexpected things might happen. Now, we've seen that in... Um, 
kind of passive perception domains like computer vision and speech recognition, uh, the way that those domains have handled the challenge of uh, unstructured real-world environments is not by having a human engineer manually encode all these possible special cases, but by actually exposing the computer to a large amount, amount of data and letting it figure out on its own the kind of patterns uh, that actually correlate with the, the things that the system cares about. Uh, and I think that uh, the same kind of approach can be effective in robotics. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a bit about the conventional or the traditional way of developing robotic systems for various tasks and how this would be different? Sure, yeah. Uh, so typically when we go to design a complex system like an autonomous robot, one of the things that we, we do, and that's a very reasonable thing to do, is we think in terms of modules and abstractions. So in a in a standard engineering curriculum, uh, we very early on learn that abstractions is how uh, people can build very complex systems. So it's very difficult, for example, for one engineer to keep in a set all of the complexities of, let's say, an entire operating system. But we don't have to do that because that engineer can assume that somebody else maybe wrote the scheduler for the operating system, the scheduler works as intended, it has a spec, and it'll act according to that spec. So then that's how we go about building robots. We might build, let's say, a module for vision, a module for state estimation, a module for planning. We wire up together these modules, and then hopefully they perform as, uh, as expected. The trouble is that the system is then placed in the real world, and the real world is going to, with some non-trivial probability, violate the assumptions of any of these modules. And for example, the perception module, if its assumptions are violated, maybe it produces a slightly erroneous output, if the other modules in this complex system assume that the level of abstractions that the perception module, let's say, outputs the position of an object in the world, and occasionally it doesn't do that, now the abstraction is violated, and all of the other pieces in this chain are going to also break down. And that's where uh, uh, we have uh, a lot of problems. So I think one of the ways that learning can overcome that problem is that in learning, you would actually optimize uh, your system to perform well at the tasks that you care about. So even if inside of that system there are some uh, interfaces that are imperfect, because of this optimization process, they will be uh, adapted or uh, repurposed so that in the end the system performs well on the tasks that you actually care about. Mm -hmm. So learning is about adaptation. Once you have an adaptive system that can adapt to the complexities of the real world, then you suffer a lot less for having these imperfect abstractions. Mm -hmm. So it's similar to instead of designing with a series of blocks towards accomplishing a task, it's looking at the entire system. You're saying end-to-end is the way that you've used? Yes, uh, it's about looking at the entire system. And, and this is actually another reason for why, why learning there is important, that uh, it's very difficult for, for a single human engineer to look at this entire system in a holistic way and, and, and think about how all of the pieces should work together to perform a task, not to mention the human engineer would then need to think about all the possible corner cases and special cases. But an, an automatic optimization procedure, a learning algorithm, can do that because it, it can, it can uh, process uh, the, the, that entire pipeline. It can learn individual blocks and mm-hmm. maybe it can learn the whole thing. And it's actually looking at the final performance of the robot on the task that you care about. Gotcha. Can you give us an intuition of what learning is like? What, what do you mean by this? What's yes. happening? So there are, uh, you know, learning is a very general term that uh, oftentimes basically boils down to an optimization process. The question is, what is what is it that you're optimizing? So when I talk about robotic learning, what I usually mean is actually uh, what is sometimes referred to as reinforcement learning. So this is a, a learning procedure that is optimizing an objective that reflects the 
actual fitness of the behavior at accomplishing some task. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if you would like a robot to learn how to walk, your objective might be the uh, distance that that robot has traversed or the velocity with which it's progressing forward. So that kind of objective is very high level. Uh, it's difficult to, for example, uh, you know, uh, analytically write down some equation that tells the robot how its joints need to move in order to maximize that objective. Uh, but with a reinforcement learning algorithm, we can actually discover uh, behavioral skills that, uh, that optimize that goal. What we need to do when we use these algorithms is we need to choose a representation for our behavioral skill. And that has actually often been a big challenge in this area, in the area of robotic learning. The challenge there is that the kind of representation we choose has a big effect on how long it takes for the robot to learn the skill. And, uh, and what do you mean exactly by representation, choosing a representation? So a representation, for example, uh, in, in your brain for a skill that you, that you understand is uh, a connectivity structure between your neurons. Mm -hmm. So that, that is, that is your, your biological representation for skills. Uh, a representation for a skill uh, for a robot can take different forms. The simplest representation could simply be a motion. It could just be a trajectory, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a sequence of points. So a robot might figure out that if it wants to pick up an object... It just needs to move its joints in a simple way. Mm -hmm. The trouble with these very simple kind of trajectory representations is that they're very inflexible. So if something about the world changes, now that single motion that the robot has acquired is not good enough. It needs uh, a more complex, more flexible representation that allows it to react to the world around it. Mm -hmm. So you can have a slightly more complex representation in the form of a feedback controller, something that actually looks at the state, applies some function to that state, and outputs the action. And the more flexible your representation is, the more different skills you could learn with that representation. Mm -hmm. So in my work, what I've looked at is uh, trying to create algorithms that can be used to learn skills with highly general representations that can be applied to many, many different tasks. Mm -hmm. One good choice for a very flexible general representation uh, is a large neural network. Because we know that neural networks, if they're large enough, can represent any function. And if they can represent any function, that means they can represent any motor skill. Of course, nothing comes for free. Because it's so general, it also has less prior knowledge, which means that the robot needs to experience more of the world. It needs to collect more experience. It needs to spend more time learning to actually get an effective motor skill using such a general representation. But because mm -hmm. it's so flexible, it can learn many skills, and it can also integrate sensory information very readily. So it can, for example, use camera images from the robot's cameras, it can use uh, you know, information from the robot's tactile sensors, from its joint encoders, all of that can be simply fed as input into a large neural network mm -hmm. uh, without having to necessarily manually engineer individual uh, perception modules for every input modality. And that can be very powerful for uh, adapting the system end-to-end -end on the task. Mm -hmm. And so how is this different than using a neural network in software when you're using robots? You mentioned you need yes. a lot of trials in, in, with a physical robot. How is this challenging? Yes, so, so that, that, that's a very good question. So we've seen, for example, that in kind of non-embodied systems, and let's say computer vision systems, speech recognition systems, natural language processing systems, uh, time and time again, especially in the last few years, uh, machine learning has been applied to, to great effect, largely by directly adapting techniques that have succeeded in other domains. So if we have a technique that works very well in computer vision, one of the uh, things that's been really effective is to modify just slightly so it can process the input, for example, for speech, and uh, with a little bit of work and the right kind of data, it'll work for speech. 
Robotics is a little bit different. The trouble with robotics is that we don't necessarily have very good supervision for learning systems. So learning has been extremely successful when you have very good supervision, when you know exactly uh, in your training set what the output should be for a given input. So you give the, uh, a neural network large numbers of pictures of cats and dogs, you say these are the cats, these are the dogs, and it can learn to then classify new cats and new dogs. But what is, what is the supervision for a robot? You show it pictures from the robot's camera, and then you need to tell it what to do. But what to do for a robot means you know, maybe uh, joint torque commands, joint angle commands, very, very low-level things that are very difficult for a human being to specify manually. So for that reason, robotics is actually quite unlike many of the other domains where learning has succeeded, because in robotics we don't have very good supervision. And that means that the robot needs to discover how to perform the task on its own. Uh, and that, that's a lot harder. And that's actually what reinforcement learning deals with, how, how the robot can discover on its own from very high-level goals, like running as fast as possible or assembling a particular uh, uh, constru uh, you know, construct in a manufacturing task from these high-level objectives, figure out what the outputs should be. Mm -hmm. And so how would you... Can you give me an example of a system that uses this approach to solve a problem? And so how do you frame the goal? How do you supervise it? Sure. Yeah. So uh, here's, here's an example uh, of a system that, that, that might solve this problem. Let's say that you'd like to have a, a robotic arm uh, that can learn how to pick up objects. Picking up objects is a, is a very fundamental thing for a robotic arm. Pretty much any kind of object manipulation that it will do requires first picking something up. Now, the output of your, uh, of your model, of your, of your controller in this case, needs to be the motor command to the arm. We don't know what the motor command should be in order for it to pick something up, but we can detect when the arm has picked something up. We could, for example, test whether there's an object in the fingers, uh, or you could even have a human tell it that. So there's some high-level supervision that says, did you pick something up? But that supervision is not detailed enough to actually directly say what the output of the network should be. Mm -hmm. So then what we can do is we can actually uh, tell the system, before it has learned anything, to simply attempt random behaviors. Uh, within some, some limitations for safety and so on. So it might attempt uh, random motions. Occasionally those random motions, very rarely, would actually end up with an object in the fingers. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, the robot can record what it did, it can record what it saw, and then label this as being a success. And then every time it experiences something that was not successful, again, it can record what it saw, record what it did, and label that as a failure. Mm -hmm. And then what, what we can do is we can actually optimize this, uh, this model, which might be a neural network, to take the kind of actions that are similar to the ones that it saw during the successful trials and dissimilar from the ones it saw in the failed trials. And this is the essence of reinforcement learning. So in reinforcement learning, we don't necessarily tell the, the system that this is the output it should produce. Instead, we let it attempt various different, perhaps randomized outputs, and then tell it which ones worked well and which ones worked poorly. So it's a kind of trial and error learning. Mm-hmm. Now, so you mentioned random motions to get started and yes. figure out what may be working. Now, did you draw inspiration from biology with this? I'm familiar with babies. Yes. Kind so, of uh, for muscle so this, this is um, whether it's inspiration from biology or not is sort of a difficult question. It may it may just be that when you're faced with a problem like this, that is basically the, the way you should go yeah, about right. solving it. Because if you don't know what your outputs should be, but you can figure out whether you succeeded. Well, there's not much else you can do. You have to try uh, initially different things. Most things you try will not succeed. 
And for the things that, that do succeed, you try to do them more often. Mm -hmm. So uh, babies, human babies, animals, uh, in very early stages of their life, they have a motor babbling phase where they move their, their limbs uh, and actuate their muscles uh, first in seemingly random ways and then in more goal-directed ways. So we know, for example, uh, that, that human babies have a tendency uh, at a certain age to begin reaching for objects. So uh, initially, maybe the motion is largely random, but at some point, it becomes progressively more and more goal-directed. And that suggests that there's, uh, you know, certain basic concepts about the world that are being learned. For example, random motions of your hand are rarely useful, but motions that reach roughly in the direction of objects in your environment are more likely to be useful. And as these, uh, 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 as the skills become more and more sophisticated, then the goals can also become more and more specific, and mm -hmm. you can learn more and more uh, complex tasks. Now, currently, most of our robotic learning technology is aimed at learning individual skills. Uh, so, for example, a robot might perform something that looks like motor babbling, but actually what it's trying to do is very specific. Maybe it's trying to pick up a particular object or it's trying to, uh, you know, assemble a particular piece of equipment. Humans need to learn many, many tasks during their lifetime. So it seems very unlikely that a baby performing motor babbling is trying to perform just one particular task. A baby is actually building uh, a, a body of knowledge uh, that, that, that can then be used for many different tasks. And I think that's something that we need to explore a lot more in robotic learning. We need to uh, think about learning processes that are inherently useful for learning many different tasks, for learning, learning large motor repertoires. Hmm. And that's, I think, uh, kind of where the frontier of this field is. Gotcha. Would this be similar to when you train, say, a convolutional neural network or something for image recognition and you chop off the end if you want it to recognize some different objects so you can use it as a feature selector early on? Is this right. kind so, of similar? So in computer vision, we've seen that, for example, if we train a very large neural network on an extremely large data set of images performing image recognition, then that network will do very well in image recognition, but it will actually in the process acquire representation mm -hmm. that is very suitable for other tasks. Now, in many ways, this was discovered almost by accident. So these networks were not intended to produce features that were good for many tasks. They just happened to have done so because the task they were faced with was difficult enough. And maybe in robotic learning, it could be the same way. Maybe we need to give our robots a kind of uh, set of model tasks that are not maybe the tasks we want in the end, but are just difficult enough to force the system to learn the right kinds of representations, the right kind of physics, and so on. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's uh, actually right now a very active area of research to see whether we, we can have robots actually acquire sort of intuitive internal models of physics that can then be uh, repurposed in the same way that these visual features were repurposed. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you integrate various sensor inputs to the system? Mm -hmm. So say a camera versus some sort of torque sensing versus something else. How do you put these all into the same system? Right. So with kind of more traditional approaches where we have different modules for state estimation and so forth, typically what we would do is we would have uh, a model of the sensor and we would create a little tailor-made module for processing input from that sensor. Visual sensing is very complex. Some other sensors are simpler. With end-to-end -end trained neural network policies, typically we can get away with uh, uh, much, uh, much simpler techniques. Now, of course, it some, somewhat depends on the format of the data coming from the sensor, but most sensors tend to produce either low-dimensional real-valued uh, readings or high-dimensional but homogeneous readings, like images. So all the different pixels in an image, they're kind of the same in the sense that an object in the top left kind of looks the same as an object in the top right. So there's some structure in the image. 
So this kind of structured data, and, and audio is the same way, you know, different patterns and, and different frequencies. Mm -hmm. This kind of structured data turns out that we can process it very well by using what's called convolutional uh, neural networks. So in a convolutional network, what we do is we uh, have shared weights. So we apply the same kind of filter to every patch in the image, mm -hmm. and then we aggregate the readings from those filters. And that kind of technique can also be used for audio. It can be used for some time series. And then uh, for low-dimensional real-valued readings, like, for example, readings from a force sensor, uh, those can be uh, fed directly into higher levels of the network because they require less uh, basic low-level processing. Ah, uh, you put them in at different locations right. so, so in the can, network. Right, so we see. can combine these readings at different points in the network. What would be really nice is to have a very general-purpose way to kind of, given a new sensor, immediately know where to put it in. We don't have that right now. Currently, we design these architectures by hand. But partly it's because this field is very much in its infancy. So as we build more and more experience about how to design these networks, I expect that we'll, we'll start seeing patterns and eventually we'll come up with, with concrete rules that say that if you have this type of sensor, here's how you should structure your network. And at that point, it should be largely automated. Mm -hmm. And so what does this actually look like? Uh, in your talk, we saw a series of several arms. Mm -hmm. can, can you tell me a bit about this method of actually testing to develop? Testing what? So your method of testing this idea mm -hmm. uh, of learning using actual robots. Okay, yeah. So and so why you need several arms. Right. So, so, so I, can, I can tell you a little bit about some of the experiments that we've done in this area. Yes. Um, one of the experiments that we conducted recently, and this was actually with, um, uh, in partnership with Google, with Google Research, is we uh, looked at how we can scale up robotic learning. Now, maybe there's a, a little bit of background here as an order that learning methods tend to perform very well, of course, in unstructured real-world environments. But there's a caveat there, which is that uh, in order for them to perform well, they need to have enough experience to actually learn the patterns that actually occur in the real world. Mm -hmm. So if you've only ever seen one cat and one dog, you might not necessarily be able to figure out what is it about the appearance of the animal that makes it a cat or a dog. But once you've seen a number of them, then you can start picking up on the patterns. And, and motor skill learning is the same way. Now, humans and animals learn over, over a lifetime. So even though you and I can pick up a new skill very quickly, partly it's because we've spent so many years picking up other skills that we have this, this uh, prior data that we can draw on, this prior experience. It would be kind of unpleasant to have to wait for m many years for a robot to build the same kind of body of knowledge. Um, so what we actually did in, in, in our experiments is instead of having one robot learn for a very, very long time, we had many robots learn for a shorter amount of time. So we actually assembled in the same way that if you want to uh, perform some really complex computation, you put many computers in the same room and you run something on many computers on a cluster, in the same way we, when we want to collect lots of data, we put many robots in the same room and we have a robot cluster. And then we can have this robot cluster actually collect experience to learn a new task, share that experience among all the robots, and learn a single policy from that shared data. And we, we've used this kind of approach to learn skills that range from picking up objects using vision to opening doors, and even to learning kind of elementary models of intuitive physics by pushing objects around and trying to predict how objects will move uh, based on the robot's actions. Mm -hmm. And do you find a fairly optimal solution for how, the ro how to control the robot and to make it do accomplish a certain task? Or do you, does it continue to get better with more data? Are you reaching a local minima? So that, that, that's a very good question. Uh, it's, of course, hard for us to say whether a particular skill is optimal or not. In fact, in, in, in these very complex real-world scenarios, it may not, sometimes not even be clear what optimal means. But one of the things that we have seen is that sometimes the particular behaviors that are learned can be surprising. So, for example, 
if we think about picking up an object, well, our intuition is that the way a robot ought to pick up an object is to put its fingers around the object and then grasp it. So a lot of what we learn in kind of introductory robotics classes about things like force closure, you know, it's sort of a very geometric way of looking at, at grasping. We found that our robots actually, you know, they typically did this, but occasionally they, they learned some surprising skills. For example, they figured out very early on that soft objects were very, very easy to grasp. But not in, in, the, in the usual way. They figured out that soft objects were easy to grasp because the robot had fingers with little fingernails on them. And if it just pinches the object, if it just puts one of the fingers right into the middle, then that was often good enough for soft objects to pick them up. So the first thing it learned to do was not reason about geometry. The very first thing it learned to do was to reason about materials. Because once it sees that the object is soft, it adopts this very reliable strategy uh, that does not have to care about geometry at all and just has to put the finger straight into the middle uh, of the, of the you know, whether it's a sock or a sponge or something like that, and pick it up right away. And that was surprising to us. And I think that's actually what, to me, is often the most exciting about learning experiments, is when you see a pattern emerge that... Uh, is perhaps contrary to your initial intuition. Mm -hmm. So with the setup you have now, if you run it for double the time that you have been running it for, will you see better results? Or I think so, yes. So we have a few experiments that we did, and some of these are also reported in our paper, where we tried to change... We basically went back and we artificially reduced the amount of data. So we, we mm -hmm. trained a model on half of our data, a quarter of our data, an eighth of our data, to mm -hmm. try to see if there's a trend. And it seems like uh, the curve is still going up. So I expect that as we collect more data, the proficiency of these systems will increase. Mm -hmm. The other thing that, uh, that would be nice to do is to actually also increase the complexity of the task. So when you have many robots in a lab, they can, of course, collect lots of data, but that's going to be data in the lab. What you really want in the end is a robot that can actually perform that behavior in the real world. So I think one of the things that would be really interesting to see in the future is to take a system like that, but actually have it learn on the job, have it actually be out in the, in the real world, maybe in an office or, or, or a hospital where it has to perform grasping. It's successful maybe the majority of the time, but occasionally it fails, but each time it fails, it actually collects more data. And that kind of system can be perpetually self-improving, and it's perpetually self-improving on exactly the kind of data that, that, it, that it actually sees at, at test time, because it's, it's already at test time, so it's a lifelong system. I think if we can do something like that, uh, that's where we'll see the really, really good results. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of the deep learning discussion. But that's not it from Audra and Sergey. As I mentioned earlier, we have a special auxiliary interview in which Audra speaks to Sergey about his PhD experience, his career and his work-life balance. So if you haven't heard enough, check out our auxiliary interview, which you can find on the podcast service on SoundCloud or with a blog post on robohub.org. As always, we'll be back with another episode in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye! Deep Learning with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.